Sam will join us later, but we're just having a nice <laughs> chat right now. <laughs> Talk some smack about him before he joins. Hurry up. <laughs> we always do when he's not on the I pod. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, he never listens. Well, that's oh, yeah. his yeah, problem, but I, I'm kind of bummed because I wore the sweatshirt intentionally. Um, I've not been on this podcast since Michigan won the national championship in football, and so I wanted to gloat a little bit, but I'll save it. <laughs> well, so Alicia, you are a Michigan fan when it comes to college sports. Do you accept the whole state for their sports or is it just college? If you're asking if I'm cheering for the Detroit Lions, yes, of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> I am cheering for the, my, yes, my affinity is with college. I've got a cat named Harbaugh. Uh, so I'm a little sad about uh, Coach Harbaugh going to the Los Angeles Chargers. Um, but I will be cheering for the Detroit Lions. It's been a great year for the state of Michigan and for football. So I'll take it. <laughs> uh, it's been a long time, a long time. I know I we were I was at a bar when the playoff game was or whatever it's called I really don't know um and <laughs> some people there were cheering and I was like well what's what's happening and they were like well the Detroit Lions have never been to a Super Bowl and the other team I don't know who they were I think they were Tom Brady's old team and I was like oh I would like the Detroit Lions to win <laughs> you miss a little bit on that but that's okay it's been 30 years since <laughs> I feel like that woman in Titanic, that old woman who sits down and tell it's been 80, you know, five years. Um, that's what I feel like now as, as both a Michigan Wolverines and a, a Detroit Lions fan. And I, I'll talk about it forever and ever. And I, I, last weekend I had a couple glasses of wine and bought all this, you know, all these victors, <laughs> national championship <laughs> things. And they showed up. I was like, yeah, well, that's cool. Good, 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 good idea. <laughs> Tipsy Alicia. Um, so it's, it's, it's fun. And I'm going to take advantage of it until next year, next fall. <laughs> well, you know, this kind of brings me to what I wanted to talk about most this mm -hmm. week, which is the Applebee's date sure. pass. Because I think it's really exciting. Okay. So in preparation for the story, I wrote down or I copied from your story, Alicia, um, the lyrics to the song. <laughs> I am no country music fan. I actually had to Google that. <laughs> I, I took it from your story because I don't even know the tune, but <laughs> it's the song fancy like, uh, from Walker Hayes. And it, the lyrics are, yeah, we fancy like Applebee's on a date night. Got that bourbon street steak with the Oreo shake. Get some whipped cream on the top two, two straws, one check, girl, I got you. So this started Applebee's latest marketing campaign. I'm sure everybody listening to it is like, what the hell did she just say? But <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing like reading song lyrics out loud. Um, so this started Applebee's huge marketing campaign. I mean, they won awards for this campaign. Uh, it was completely viral in the best way, not in the COVID way. Um, but like it was huge. And so this carried through for a while. We talked with the marketing uh, the CMO, uh, Sam actually spoke to him recently on an episode of Takeaway. So go check that out. He talks about how they developed this partnership for Fancy Like. Very interesting. Um, but so this date night pass is a new thing they introduced. Um, and Alicia, you wrote all about it. Thank you to our wonderful reporting by you. Um, and so it's for $200, you get all these benefits. I mean, it's pretty crazy. It's over $1,500. And it's a pretty low gold price. Yeah, it's over a $1,500 value. I think that's the sort of the hook here is uh, you can get this card 
uh, for one date night a week uh, for 52 weeks. Um, you know, and the impetus behind this launch was, you know, Applebee's is a huge um, value player. They it, they don't shy away from this. They lean into it, um, you know, and they wear it on their sleeve. They've got Dollaritas, you know, for God's sake, and all you can eat uh, riblets and shrimp and all that stuff. And so they they very much embrace their position as a value player in the casual dining space. Um, this, I would think, now this is purely speculative on my part, um, but I think this would generate a little bit more frequency to Applebee's than perhaps many of its casual dining peers. We think we talk about this all the time, you know, casual dining is not a frequent diner play uh, all that, that often, especially in the context when we're talking about Dutch bros and McDonald's and so on and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, I think this campaign was really, really interesting in that it, 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 it kind of proved people are willing to, um, use Applebee's frequently, uh, selling out in less than a minute. Um, it pissed a lot of people off. I had email. I mean, I was, you know, perusing social media. I was looking at Reddit and TikTok and Instagram and all this stuff. And of course there's threats for boycotts and, um, you know, and I had several emails. I had about four emails directly to me. Cause we include our email address at the bottom of each story. And, and we get we actually get these emails quite often where people, I think, think we're the brand to make these decisions. Um, but people, you know, were emailing me like, is this a scam? Cause I think it's a scam. And, and, you know, I, I look, I, I don't think this was a scam. I don't think, I, I do think that maybe it sold out quicker than Applebee's was anticipating, but I don't think, uh, you know, these types of promotions that build this huge, you know, exclusivity angle and um, all of this, this huge buzz, you know, and I'm thinking of everything from, you know, McDonald's adult happy meals to KFC fire logs, all of this stuff sells out always. And it always sells out suspiciously in a really swift amount of time, you know, these suspiciously. suspiciously. I mean, the restaurant marketers, I would argue because of the complexity, uh, you know, and the, just the sheer usage and excitement of this industry. I think restaurant marketers are the most savvy of any industry. They know what they're doing. Joel Yashinsky knows what he's doing at Applebee's, you know, and um, again, you know, but you have to wonder, you asked the question, Holly, is the, is the risk worth it? You're getting, um, you know, threats of boycott and angry uh, comments and, and, and so on and so forth. That's yet to, that's yet to be seen. I don't think it's going to have a material impact on, I think people will still go to Applebee's. They have Dollaritas for God's sake. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I, I do kind of want to piggyback off of with that is um Applebee's doesn't have a strong loyalty program like its sister brand IHOP does. IHOP launched its uh, loyalty program about two-ish years ago, and it's it's driven, it's had tremendous success. About 6 million active members, um, and, and, and IHOP has done a lot of work around that loyalty program. It's going to continue to do so. Um, I can imagine that um, Applebee's, this this campaign may have been a play to sort of feel some things out because when they sold out of that card, you know, on the website, it said, Hey, go to our club, 
you know, and uh, instead we don't have this date night pass available anymore, but we've got this, you know, this club. So I, I think there could have been some feeling out of things there. Um, and, and again, I think that, you know, given that Applebee's tends to be a, a higher frequent casual dining chain versus many of its peers, loyalty could work there. And I hop its sister brand at Dine Brands is very much proving that. So I'm wondering, I'm speculating that there could be some deeper things here. Again, their savvy, savvy marketing team, they've leveraged this fancy-like thing before with some lip gloss. I, I, that's why I was looking behind me. I've got the, the lip gloss. It actually, the box sings when you open it. It's kind of cool. But um, yeah, I think that there's more at play. And I, I see that we have a new... Um, guest or participate or whatever. And I, I, I don't want to ignore the, the elephant in the room. <laughs> well, Sam missed me speaking the lyrics to Fancy Like to Alicia. This is what happens when I show up late to a podcast recording. Uh, hey, my apologies, everybody, but I've got great news, which is that I have a working dryer again. So that's all that really matters at the end of the day. What were you doing in the interim? Were you just like... <laughs> Hanging all your clothes outside, like it a, was like um, Little House on the Prairie over here is what was happening. <laughs> I had we had clothes on every surface of the house, and the, for those who have kids, they know well you don't just do one load of laundry per week like I did when I was in my twenties. You do like eighteen. So I haven't had a dining room in a month. Anyway, that's a story for another day. How you guys doing? What are we talking about? Are we talking about restaurants or what? We're talking about your dryer. Well, <laughs> So we're talking about Applebee's date night pass, which, you know, Alicia, you made all these great points, but I think the best part about it is this little gold card that you get. Very pretty. Nobody's, card. Getting, it's like it. A card. Nobody's getting that card. Wait, nobody has gotten it. Like <laughs> it nope. hasn't happened. People have gotten it, but it's oh, no, that's in a minute. But, so. <laughs> <laughs> all five that they made. That's why they ran out in a minute. Cause they only made five of them. Well, and Alicia may have made this point, but the, la- the one thing I will contribute to this story is that there's no such thing as bad news. Cause it's like, and we've we've had this conversation about other things in the industry on this podcast before, which is like if we're talking about it, then it's a success because it's got everybody talking. I mean, my inclination is to say that Joel Yashinsky, the CMO, and his team have had another home run. Although, as Alicia has pointed out, you know, people are boycotting, but like, I don't know. I think a boycott that makes the news is just as strong as something good that made the news because again, it, everybody talks about it. So. Um, you know, I, I talked to Joel a couple weeks ago on my podcast, Alicia, I know you talked to him a lot. Um, just a, a really great, smart guy. And he had said when he was on my podcast, you know, he has this 90, 10 rule where, you know, 90% of what you do should be in your wheelhouse and 10% should be a stretch. Um, it looks like this is part of their 10% and, um, they're going to learn a lot from it. And, you know, they're going to, I'm sure they're collecting a ton of data on this and they'll iterate again on it and it will be probably very successful. So um, all around, it seems like a win in my book. You know, it's like we all share a brain at this point because Sam, in my intro, I said, is this good buzz or bad buzz? Mm. Um, and then I also mentioned your takeaway interview um, and you covered a lot of the same points Alicia did. So we're just like a hive mind. <clears throat> so I can just sign off and go enjoy my dryer. <laughs> I just am going to go do a load of laundry real quick. <laughs> I was going to say, is that enjoyable? I do. I it, do want to. It is now. I want to point out that um, Sam mentioned that Joel Yashinsky is a s- very smart, and that is because he I went take to Bowling Green State University. <laughs> That's right. I know where this is going. <laughs> well, I, I, I accept him as a fellow Mac, uh, fellow Mac, Mac uh, alum, right. Mac Shin. That's right. That's right. 
We already <laughs> talked about Michigan, so let's now talk about we did. Oh, we talked about I'm the glad Detroit you saved Lions. that for while I was yeah. not on. Yes. <laughs> well, I had to know if she was a fan of the Detroit Lions, she has, yeah. which I'm, no, we I'm are, really a fan We are all fans of the Detroit Lions yes. this week, I'll tell you that, because otherwise I have nothing to cheer for in the NFL playoffs, but that's neither here nor Who there. Who are they playing against? The 49ers. Come on, Holly. Of course I expect you to know that. <laughs> San Francisco? Yeah, well done. Very good. Good, good job. Yeah, Everybody. I was telling Alicia, I was watching the game at a bar, and I was like, I don't know what's going on or who's playing. I couldn't read anything, so there was just like a little red blob, and I was like, oh, so they're playing the red team. The red um, team. And so uh, then people at the bar were explaining it to me, and then I was like, oh, I'll be a Lions fan now. Good. good okay. Yep. Welcome to the club. There's yep. nothing to hate about the Lions. It's just nothing. a good story. So yep. anyway, this is not a sports podcast. This is a restaurant. <laughs> what are we doing? We'd, we'd be we'd be better than uh, what's his name, Money Pat McAfee. We'll be, <laughs> anyway, we're not going to spread conspiracies and stuff. So that's good. That's <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so let's talk about Chipotle. Um, I have to say, when Alicia told me about this story on First Bite after we uh, stopped recording, I did say, "Should I apply for a job at Chipotle?" Um, You're not so- Gen Z, though, Holly. I know, but I got a lot of student loan debt, and that's really where this is. Well, I guess they they don't they don't have an age limit on this thing, do they? No, no, and I'm borderline, so you know I think I could. I in. feel like I should um, tell the audience that we pay you better than Chipotle. I just feel like that should be known. Um, but anyway, but you're not offering me student loan relief, Sam, and that would be really key. So maybe you should talk about that. You know, when it comes time I'll to decide to all those things, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so anyways, the story is about Chipotle. Um, they are hiring 19,000 workers for their new, or they're looking to hire 19,000 workers for their busiest time of the year, which is March to May. I guess Alicia will explain why that's their busiest time of the year, because Lord knows I don't know. Um, and so this is a new way to target Gen Z, who is currently 73% of their workforce. Um, so they are offering several things for student loan relief, um, financial literacy, uh, there are ways to partner with SoFi and they have all these things that they're doing and it's very interesting and really involved. And they're offering like classes on how to learn how to do your finances. And um, it's a really comprehensive system. But another thing Alicia pointed out is that they're also doing these mental health me- measures that they're adding. And um, as we've heard a lot, Gen Z is very keen on mental health. It's a very important feature to them. Um and they want to work for companies that offer more of a lifestyle. And adding mental health perks is this lifestyle choice um, and this lifestyle added value. And so um, it makes the job really appealing to Gen Z or borderline Gen Z like me. Um, so I'm curious to hear what you guys think about what this means for Chipotle that it's offering this. And do you think others will have to respond to it? Alicia's done. She's over. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I mentioned this on first bite. I, I'll talk about, I'll talk about the evolution of the restaurant industry workforce until the cows are literally home. It is the biggest um, pro that came out of COVID. It, you know, that was such a crappy time, but we have the opportunity now to really rethink how we approach our workforce, and we have struggled so undeniably with that in the past. Um, but then when we became, you know, when our workers became essential um, and then we went through 21 and 22 where we had all time high quit rates and we couldn't staff our restaurants to even open on certain days, this is when the conversation became very real. 
And what's interesting to me about the timing of this Chipotle release, and Chipotle's always had a tremendous amount of benefits. You know, I it, I think it's important to make sure that that is very clear. They've always had, you know, education assistance and mental health benefits before. They offer bonuses for recruitment and things things along those lines that are, probably are better than most companies. They're company owned. It's probably easier for them to execute against these things. Um what was really interesting to me about these new benefits is they are directly targeting the challenges that, um, you know, besiege Gen Z the most, because like you mentioned, Holly, they're three fourths of the, the, their workers uh, and they're struggling. They can't buy houses because they're, you know, up to their nose in debt. Um, you know, it, it's off the table for them, let alone saving for retirement. I mean, I don't, I don't know many Gen Z people who are having the conversation about saving for retirement, and they should be at that age, you know. Um, and, and so I think that's a very sexy benefit is, okay, we're going to match your 401k if you pay off your student loans. And it, it's kind of like a two, you know, a two for one benefit, in, in my opinion, that they're enticing these workers through that 401k hook. I also want to make a point that, you know, several executives that I've spoken to in the past several months, um, including just last week at the, at the ICR conference with Christine Barone, who's the CEO of Dutch Bros. All of them are pushing this point now that uh, recruitment and retention is not just about higher wages anymore. This generation has changed that conversation. COVID compounded that change, accelerated that change. Sure, higher pay is, you know, you know, a necessity. We haven't updated our federal minimum wage since like 2009. <laughs> but they want these wellness benefits. They want flexibility. They want a great working environment. They want people who understand that they should be paying off their student loans responsibly and simultaneously saving for their 401k and not having to come up with that either or decision because they're up to their nose in debt. And I think this is this is going to change uh, or maybe continue to accelerate that conversation. Uh, and that excites me because I'm sick of this industry being transient. The turnover rates, you know, I, it, it needs to be a respectable industry. We have to match the benefits, um, you know, and, and incentives to, to do that. And I think this is a good start. Well, Alicia, you're basically describing me when you talk. Um, I am about to be 30 <laughs> listeners, so... Be prepared for that fear. Um, I just started adding to my 401k in December um, and I have been here for six years. So um, it's a real thing. And I've seen a dip in my pay. It's it's a real thing to be able to find the money to do that, especially when you're working in a fast food, fast casual, quick service environment. Like you're working hourly. You're not. So like, it's a big deal to be able to have that extra money to you know, take out a hundred dollars out of your paycheck. That could be life-changing money for somebody that hundred dollars. It could be their meals for the month. It could be. So, I mean, I totally agree that it's something that we have to work to get to a place where it's not a choice. It's no. something that they can afford to do. No doubt. And I think one other point that I think it's worth making is, you know, not only we left money on the table because we didn't have staffing for hours or days, you know, um, but turnover is expensive and it, you know, the costs of turnover training, ramping up everybody, onboarding, all that stuff far exceeds wage uh, inflation. Um, and some of these benefits, 
you know, I bet if we put that down on a sheet, we would be able to be like, okay, this is far, far more uh, cost effective to offer some benefits like this than it is to spend $1,200 every time somebody leaves. And people in this industry leave a lot. And I think that's going to continue to be a challenge just because of the nature of the work. It's hard. Um, but I think that, you know, we have to start figuring out how to make it less of a challenge. And again, that became much more clear of a priority throughout the past several years. Yeah, and to that end, <clears throat> I mean, I, I, a lot of the conversations I've been having with restaurant leaders, I'm sure it's the same for the two of you. So much um, uh, it comes up now around uh, showing young people on your team that they have a career trajectory, that they have potential to rise the ranks, that they have potential to be leaders, to be managers, to be owners, that you can in the restaurant industry become a millionaire. And, you know, that is an important part of all this because the employers like a Chipotle that aren't just paying better, but are saying, we also are paying attention to you. We're also, you know, providing for your 401k. That's a long-term thing. We're paying attention to the fact that you have student loan debt. We, we, we see you, we understand mental health awareness. You know, when you do that to a team member, they see an employer who cares and who is investing in you, not just, I need cheap labor. And obviously, so often the restaurant industry has been that. I need cheap labor. Here's a young person willing to work for cheap. Go. So if you, if you yes, pay better, but more importantly, invest in that young person, then you build trust, you build a relationship, they're more likely to stick around. And to Alicia's point, turnover is expensive, but also consider the long-term benefits of somebody who's been with your company five, 10 years the institutional knowledge that they have, the, their ability to do the job well, the pipeline of leadership you're building. I would call out, um, I recently spoke to Farah Scott, the CEO of Trapper Sushi Company out of Washington State. Um, and here's this incredible story of a young woman who started as a server at the sushi company and is now the CEO. Now that's abnormal, of course, but now she and the founder, Trapper O'Keefe, are building out this development program that demonstrates to all frontline employees, here's what you could do. And they have this great program where they're going to grow through employee ownership. So they're techni it's technically like a franchise model, but the owners are uh, employees that they've identified as strong leaders. And, and so, again, all of that ends up being a very long-term play, but you know, 5, 10, 20 years from now, the health of your organization depends on the talent that you're building in the pipeline now. And so it takes more than better pay to secure that trust from those employees, to secure that relationship. There's just so much more that goes into it. And that's why I think Chipotle, this is, is, this is such a smart move for them to do. Um, just because, again, it's a bet on their future, which I mean, Chipotle's future is bright no matter what. But like as far as profitability, as far as leadership, as far as being, uh, you know, tops and all kinds of things like hospitality, service, all those things, this is the bet that they place now. Well, you know, we wrote about we wrote about um, managers and uh, for our power list in 2023, I was about to say this year, it's last year now. Um and our cover was a Chipotle regional manager because she had been there for five years. She had worked her way up the ranks. So Chipotle does have a history of helping promote from within. And, and we spoke with her and she was talking about that. Um, so, I mean, I think it's important to note that they are doing this, but now they're adding all these extra benefits to really help these workers who enter 
want to grow with the company. And that's the restaurant industry's biggest problem is that people don't see a future. Well, and Chipotle and, and um, Alicia might know better than I do, but Chipotle was actually one of the first to codify, so to speak, this restaurant partner idea. They had this incredible ro- restaurant partner program when uh, Monty Moran was the co-CEO along with Steve Ells. Um, and and I, I highly recommend Monty Moran's book. I'm going to try for the title. I think it's Love is Free, Guac is Extra. Um, he spoke at Create a few years ago. I read the book. It's a fantastic book, but he talks about that program. And that whole premise of that book was, um, you know, that, that, you know, you invest in your people and you show them the trajectory they have in front of them. And that eventually they were naming, you know, strong leaders as restaurant partners. And, and I mean, Chipotle was the toast of the town. Mm-hmm. Um, Alicia would know better than I if it, that program has been maintained. But what I can tell you is regardless they set a model. I can't tell you how many operators I've I've spoken to are like, oh, well, we we copied the Chipotle model. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we wanted to do it like Chipotle, um, and and even similar to the Trappers example I was giving, kind of a similar idea. Raising Canes I know does this, um, which is all to say like Chipotle has been doing this for a long mm-hmm. time. I think this part of it is you know a little bit more part of the new regime and some of their efforts. But the proof's in the pudding. I mean, look at Chipotle and the money that they're the profitability the the growth potential. It's just, it's all there. And this is why. Yeah. It does seem like operating partner programs are becoming far more common. In fact, that was one of the first things that GJ Hart implemented when he came on board at Red Robin. Um, And it's been a tremendous success so far. And I think that's, again, I think I get really excited because it seems like the, the conversation has not only changed, but is maybe accelerating. And, you know, to your point, Sam, Chipotle says that nearly 90% of its current restaurant leadership started as crew members. So when you say proof is in the pudding, I assume they're not lying about those numbers. That's pretty amazing. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive. So now Alicia, we're about to lose you. So I wanted to just get your top line thoughts about America's favorite. Why are you and then I'll dive deeper into with Sam. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Alicia, this is a really awkward way to tell you, but uh... <laughs> what have I done? Is this how uh, I, I know? No. Um, what, what what were you asking? I was distracted. That was really distracting, you guys. I feel like I'm just getting started. Um, I want to know. You wrote a great feature on America's favorite chains. You know, comparing the yes. Dutch Bros and Ruth Chris yes. rise. Um, so, can you just tell me some of the top line things that you thought yeah. about? You know, some of the biggest chains that came out with this kind of weird numbers it was really interesting I, and i was swimming in that data for days it was so fun to swim around in that data because it was pretty comprehensive i mean you know this technomic data was looking at everything from guests uh you know from speed to cleanliness and everything in, in between so it, you know it's a pretty holistic view uh that uh that was taken when we talk about america's favorite brands it's not necessarily about frequency right it's about those attributes that consumers identify as being really strong. And I had the opportunity to dive into two in particular on really opposite sides of the, the spectrum at the, in the industry and Ruse Chris um, and then Dutch bros uh, and, you know, steak and coffee. I think I, I pointed this out in, in my story that, you know, we are, we are a nation of steak eaters and, and coffee lovers. I don't have those statistics, but they were pretty, I mean, they're hot. <laughs> Most people drink coffee and most people eat steak. So um, I think the takeaway then, if you parse out those two brands specifically, and I know my colleague Joanna 
uh, looked a little bit more deeply at the categories like smoothies and stuff. Um, but if you parse those two, uh, you know, categories out specifically, all we've heard about for the past several months is consumers are softening. And we've seen this, you know, to an extent with traffic levels that are declining. But I, I, I truly believe, and I think that history uh, supports this, um, that American consumers are going to justify certain spending allowances. And those include daily indulgences and they include, uh, you know, like coffee or afternoon pick-me-ups like a Dutch bros and special occasions. Um, and that's where's Chris. So, you know, we saw special occasion dining uh, tick up pretty significantly last year. Um, you know, I argue that there's still significant pent up demand because two years is too long for the American consumer not to have consistent access to restaurants. Um, younger consumers have proven that they, they prefer restaurants over food at home. Um, and so, you know, both of those chains have those things in common where they, you know, support the two things that we will allot our discretionary spending for. If you drill deeper into those two brands, you know, Ruth's Chris is now under the umbrella of Darden. And I think that is going to be a really good thing. ICR, several people mentioned how uh, efficient Darden is. They don't discount. They're not value players. They're so unique. They've got just these tremendous stories right now, anomalous stories in Olive Garden, um, you know, and, and, um, and Longhorn Steakhouse. So I, I think they execute really well. They prefer to overstaff. They, you know, um, avoid, like I said, avoid discounting. And I think that is really starting to yield significant results for Darden. I don't see a reason for that to change uh, as Ruth Chris continues to integrate into that company. Dutch Bros is just a story on its own. I mean, it's growing uh, tremendously in a wildly growing category. Um, it's been around for 30 years. I think that always surprises me because some of these competitive peers of them, you know, are newer. Uh, but look, they've got, you know, an efficient uh, footprint. Uh, I think it's like 700. Their box is small. Um, you know, a, a efficient labor line. Beverages are just huge profit margin generators. Um, and, and, you know, like I said, I spoke with Christine Barona, ICR, the new CEO of Dutch Bros. And they've got to, they, they really um, hang their hat on their culture. Uh, and I think that's pretty, I, I don't know. I don't work there. Um, I don't really know anybody who works there, but I can tell you that they have been in several um, similar surveys uh, and reports as the one that we reported on about, about um, uh, high customer service scores. Uh, and that starts with a, with a, with the staff. And so that's going to, that's going to generate frequency and excitement and all of it. And I, you know, again, steak and coffee, it's, it's what we, it's what we like. We're gluttonous, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I think that the one thing I'll, I'll kind of say, and then move into my hard stop that is now passed. Um, this beverage segment is so fun to cover and I, it's because of the more efficient, you know, box. It's because of the, the different uh, labor line. It's not as complex as a burger joint. Um, we have proven that we want, uh, we don't eat in tidy little day parts anymore. 
the pandemic just came and turned that on its head. You know, I work from home. Sometimes I need to get out of this house. And so three o'clock to the Dutch bros up the street. There's no Dutch bros in Louisville yet. But um, to to the Starbucks up the street, of course, it's really enticing. And so I I just think this beverage category is really, really fun to to follow. And Dutch bros is is one of the leaders and I think will continue to be because of that. Um, you know, because of that uh, focus that it puts on its culture and customer service. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. Well, one of the interesting things that, you know, Ron Ruggles brought up with all of us was that there are so many Darden brands on this list. Yeah, It's really run by Darden brands. And that includes, we have one specific group dedicated to Gen Z's favorite brands. We have a specific group dedicated to millennials' favorite brands. And Darden comes up in those as well as the highest ranked brands in total. So they're appealing to these younger generations, these Darden brands that, you know, when I think of Darden, I think it's an older customer. And it's proving that it's certainly not. This These results are saying this customer is every age group. It's every financial walk of life. It's everything. These are universally loved. Alicia, yeah. I release you. I can talk about this too. I, you, <laughs> yeah. you have a soft definition of a hard stuff. I do. I, I, I do. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll just leave it. it like again, um, Rick Cardenas and the, and the Darden team spoke at ICR and several people commented on their approach and how it's different. And it, investors are turning their heads. It's, it continues to outperform the industry. And I think that the next earnings call is going to show, um, I think it's going to show more of what we're already talking about. So, all right, y'all, uh, I'm out <laughs> and enjoy your day. And Sam, you missed it. So go blue. Oh boy. Goodbye. Happy, Get out happy, of here. Happy clothes drying. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. I did see a story online about a woman who accidentally put her cat into the dryer. Wow. Well, that's a segue. Uh, and what happened to the cat, Holly? <laughs> Um, it did not make it. Yeah, because uh, that's not where cats belong. Jeez, Louise, people, if you thought to yourself, oh, I'm going to dry my cat in the dryer, you got another thing that you got to deal with. Okay. Um, yeah, my thoughts on America's Favorite Chains, though. I mean, yes. yeah, like Darden, <laughs> clearly, I, it did surprise me. Five brands on the top 10. I mean, that just is truly, truly impressive. Now, um, Alicia was kind of getting to this, and just to reemphasize, it, it just so aligns with customer lifestyles and need states, um, which is why she says steak and coffee. I say steak and smoothie because one thing that uh, Alicia did not mention, the top 10 has two smoothie chains. So Dutch Bros is up there. Dutch Bros is number three on the top 10 after Ruth's Chris in season 52. But coming in at number eight is Tropical Smoothie Cafe and number 10 is Smoothie King. So even though, yes, there is a coffee brand on here, there's two smoothie chains. And so we could lump Dutch Bros and the smoothie chains into kind of one sort of beverage snack category, you could say. And and to say, you know, smoothies and steak, like why? Why those two? And and hopefully not together. Well, I mean, who knows? Maybe after this list, maybe they belong together. Maybe this is a, a missed opportunity. Um, next thing we're gonna see Ruth's Chris with a specialty smoothie line. Um, but you know, as Alicia said, you know, of course we love our steak and we love our smoothies and coffee. Um, but I think more importantly here is to just emphasize the, the alignment with the lifestyle of the customer and their experiences and their memories. You know, that that was the first takeaway, I think maybe perhaps the most obvious from America's Favorite Chains is around the fact that there are a lot of steakhouses on here 
because people, by and large, don't go there very often, and they're usually going there for a special 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 occasion, so an anniversary, a birthday, a celebration of some kind. You know, um, this is not a weekly thing that you go to Ruth's Chris. I mean, maybe there's some out there, but by and large, you're probably going there maybe at most quarterly. Um, and, and so the point is, is that alignment with this very special memory, this very special occasion, you know, of course, people are going to have fond memories of that. Um, and the same thing goes for the smoothies and coffee. And it's that's not the memory part of it, but it's the lifestyle part of it, which is um, I'm on my way to work and I, that's my spot I swing into for my daily coffee or my daily smoothie. And so for me, one of those takeaways from all of this data is, you know, how do you align with those moments for customers? And you might be a burgers and fries joint and you're not going to play on in either side. You're not playing on the daily you know, sort of lifestyle aspect and you're not playing on the special occasion, but you could find ways to, again, align with customer experiences and customer good vibes. Because if you participate in the good vibes beyond the quality of your food, beyond the convenience and value of your food, but by creating a very special moment for them, they will reward you. You know, they, they'll, they'll give back with their loyalty and by rating the, the brand's your brand very high on a list such as this. And so that's my first um, takeaway. If I sort of started to break down some of the other results, I mean, one of the things I think you immediately will notice is not a lot of major chains on this list. Um, you were one to point that out, Holly. You said no top 10 chains outside of Chick-fil-A. The only list Chick-fil-A made it onto, I believe, was the chicken list. So favorite yep. chicken chains. It was number one, of course. Um, but other than that, you're seeing a lot of mid-scale chains here. So you're seeing Culver's, you're seeing In-N-Out and Freddy's in the burger category. You're seeing Raising Cane's, uh, you know, First Watch, um, Carabas, Magianos, all relatively household names, certainly in the regions where they play. Um, but you're not seeing McDonald's, you're not seeing Starbucks. Um, I don't know what to make of that outside to say the opportunity is there, even if you are um, playing in a category where there is a major titan of uh, restaurants in that category. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, you might be a burger player and, you know, worried about losing business to McDonald's, but people don't go to your brand for the same reason they go to McDonald's possibly. So, um, so that was a, a, a lesson I pulled from this. And the last thing I'd say is the difference in millennial and Gen Z favorites, I think is kind of interesting just because, I mean, as an older millennial, I tend to just assume I'm young, but know that I'm inherently <laughs> know that I'm old. You are old. I'm, You're a grumpy old I'm man. a grumpy old man now. And, um, but like when I think of Gen Z, I don't think that there's that much difference. But sure enough, if you look at some of these lists, it's just really fascinating to see the difference. And so like one I would point out is like sweet green. And this feels so this rang so true for me. Sweet green is the fourth most favorite uh, limited service restaurant for millennials. And sweet green does not show up on a Gen Z list. And I and I think that resonated for me because you know, again, Sweetgreen feels very of my generation. It was, you know, it's been around 16, 17 years. Um, and this is not to, to speak ill of the Sweetgreen necessarily, but is it not resonating with the younger customers? I mean, it's definitely not a value play. Sweetgreen's not cheap. Um, so that was really, um, really something interesting to look at. Um, and, and, you know, you made the point like Darden still shows up on every list. So that's impressive. Um, 
I'm not going to belabor this too much um, and really just say go to nrn.com and get all the results. <laughs> Um, but it's, you know, there are particular learnings you can take from this. Um, as we speak, I'm getting ready to go live on LinkedIn with Robert Byrne from Technomic, our partner on the report. Um, that video will make available online as well. So I highly recommend you go check that out because we'll, we'll be talking about all these same things and he's a lot smarter than I am about all this stuff. Um, but like, you know, I, it's easy to get sort of lost in sort of the clickbait weeds of something like this and say, ah, well, whatever people, you know. Customers, well, they don't know what they're talking about. But there's real practical insight to pull from a list like this. And so I highly recommend you go review the, the uh, results, look at what the generations care about, look at what is tops by um, by uh, service category. I think, you know, the, the only one that didn't surprise me was when you look at it by uh, menu category. That one to me is like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Other than that, there's just a lot of really interesting, surprising tidbits. So that's what I got for you. I think that the generational difference, like, you know, I know millennials can be much older. Like you're on the older side, I'm on the younger side. So like, I I know that the spread between millennial is big and so is the spread between Gen Z, but they're going around like 28 to like 18. So some of these things I was super surprised by. I mean, we know that I don't know a lot of brands or have not experienced them in person. So, you know, forgive that listeners, but like seasons 52, I thought was such an odd thing for Gen Z's top full service chain. Like that was mind boggling to me that this was. And um, another thing that shows up is the brass tap, which I wrote a profile on for our um, website, nrn.com. Um, but they don't have that many locations and they're number 10 on Gen Z's full service list. That's a brand with like 50 locations. That's pretty wild that they were able to make the list and they are definitely a lifestyle brand. I mean, that's kind of what we're covering, but it was so weird to me, but like in the limited service, Torchy's tacos, like that makes perfect sense to me. Like I was just like, yep, that sounds right. But some of them like nukes, I didn't think that nukes would be on the list. And I think there's just a lot of things that I had to stop and say, huh, I would have never guessed that. And we cover this industry every single day. Yeah, and I think, and that's, and, and going back to that sort of comment I made about the mid market, you're, you're also seeing a lot of regional chains. And so I think what I, I would pull from that observation is that I think customers by and large, and particularly the younger generations, or at least Gen Z and millennials, I think they would, they prefer business with what might be perceived as not a national chain, right? Because Nukes is is a good example. Nukes is is primarily in the Southeast. Um, and if you go to a Nukes, which when I lived in the Southeast, I went to Nukes, it's great. And, you know, but it, it sort of, it rings very true of a Southeast community. It just feels like it's of that community, right? And And that's what people want, right? Like they want to feel like, this could be just as well a local one-off restaurant as it is a chain. And that's what I see a lot of in these restaurants that show up here, particularly for the millennials and the Gen Z. So um, look, if you have 10,000 locations already, there's nothing you can do to reverse that and go regional and not national. But you should carry yourself individually at the unit level like you're a local restaurant. Because, I mean, and that's what everybody means when they talk about authenticity authenticity of the concept and of your workforce and of the experience you're providing, even if you have 10,000 locations, you can create that at the unit level. And so, so I think that seems to be what resonates uh, with guests and there's ways that you can use that to your advantage. 
I mean, Alicia was talking about earlier, take Dutch Bros as an example. They're Broistas. Dutch Bros wants to have 4,000 units in the next several years. They're on their way there, but they have a distinct feel that people love, and they're at the top of every list. They're Gen Z's favorite limited service brand. So, I mean, definitely go. I will link everything in our show notes, but go check out that report. It's really great. has a lot of great information. I'll also link the LinkedIn Live that we do. So you can check all of that out. Um, I'm sure you guys already peruse our website daily and are checking our homepage at all times. But in case you're not, I will give you every link. Um, and please go check it out. It's a super, super interesting report. And you'll be like, huh, a lot. Indeed. Huh. <laughs> huh. All right. So, <laughs> huh. Um, okay, so I'm going to throw it over to this week's interview, which is the new CEO of Bonchon, Susie Tsai, um, and she talked to Joanna Fantosi. So um, that interview is going to come up next. Very cool. She talked to her like the day before they announced the CEO. So it's a very fun interview with a lot of really great tidbits and some surprises. Um, so enjoy that. But I'm going to thank you, Sam and Alicia, who's already gone. Um, for joining me. Uh, congratulations on your new role as CEO of Bonchon. Uh, Susie, could you tell me a bit about your background and how you got to the brand? Of course. Hi, I'm Susie Sai, CEO of Bonchon US. Um, I've been with the brand since uh, last August and I'm super excited to be here. Um, I started my restaurant career back at Brinker International, which leads uh, Grand Bar. And, you know, luckily at Brinker, when you um, when you're working there, you get to work on various brands. So I got to work on Chili's, um, On the Border, Maggiano's, Macaroni Grill, Corner Bakery as a big portfolio company. Um, spent my time there, you know, 17 years, worked on those brands, mainly for Chili's Bar and Grill and worked on various businesses, started in Consumer Insights and um, led to marketing and global marketing as well. So worked a lot with um, uh, international franchising and as well as domestic franchising. And it's, it was a great experience that I had over those years. Um, you know, I had a little bit of a um, also background in media. I worked for the Dallas Morning News. Um, coming out of college, as well as uh, Verizon. And um, I studied economics and poli-sci as, as my uh, undergrad and then international uh, management for my grad school. So all of those, um, you know, interestingly, the, the studies that I've done have applied really well in, in, my, in my career, in my business. But really, the, um, the restaurant piece of it was what really drew me. And that's why I worked at Brinker for such a long time. It was really at, at Brinker, you know, we called it, you know, we don't call it restaurant business, we called it people business. And that's ultimately what it is. And same thing here at Banchan, you know, it's all about people. It's all about connecting people, bringing great food to people. And, and it's, it's, it's been, it's been awesome to be here. Amazing. Um, and so I, I love the kind of the, the kind of diverse background uh, of, of kind of getting to work with all those different Brinker brands, um, kind of a, a different leap, different types of different types of companies for sure, between uh, Brinker and Bonchon, a bit smaller. Um, and uh, but I'm just curious, why are you drawn? Why were you drawn to Bonchon? You know, when um, I first uh, found out the opportunity at Bonchon, it really drew me because number one, food is awesome. So I would never work for a restaurant company that does not have great food. <laughs> and at Banchan, the fried chicken is awesome. The sauces are awesome. So that was number one reason what really drew me. Um, you know, secondly, the fact that it's Korean and I'm Korean and it's something that I'm very proud of. And it's, 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 it's great to be able to be a Korean American representing a Korean American company in the States. 
um, you know, I talked about the the careers I had in the restaurant in the industry, and they're you know very um, mainstream American brands that I work for. And I never thought that I would ever work for a Korean company, and this was my opportunity to, as a Korean American, to you know really bring back you know all the things that I, that I can bring to the table as a Korean American to a company that I can lead, and and, and a brand that I can be very proud of, that I can be myself and be very authentic at, and just the fact that beyond my business. Um, uh, expertise that I can bring somebody who I am and my sort of the gut and the way I feel about, you know, being a Korean, being a Korean American to the company, to the brand was something that really drew me to it. I absolutely love that you mentioned that because I agree that it's, it's so important to uh, to kind of have that expertise and, and background as a Korean American yourself. Um, and also in the fact of the, that, um, in general, in this restaurant business, um, I kind of feel like it's a little homogenous in leadership. <laughs> and uh, so, I mean, don't get too many uh, women of color CEOs. And that's amazing. Um, and I guess, like, how important is it to you to kind of be in that kind of trail trailblazing position? Not not to put any any pressure on you, but kind of being that bit of that trailblazing position uh, in within the restaurant industry. And, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a little scary, right? You know, in this position, I have to make a lot of decisions fast and all day. And ultimately, the decisions that I'm making, I'm making along with our franchisees, and they're also a very diverse group of people. Um, and a lot of them are Korean Americans and Asian Americans, and and my parents are just like them. So I have tremendous empathy for our franchise group and being able to be a be a leader who can you know support them to, for them to run a successful day to day business has been very rewarding and and ultimately I think that sort of the passion the conviction I have for their success makes me be very honest in the decisions that I make um, on their behalf and and you know it's been it's been a great ride but you know just having. Um, being in this role and being a woman, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom all day. I have three little kids and, and it just, you know, it's such a balancing act from that standpoint. So, so nothing is, um, you know, I don't make any decisions like the, everything is, uh, you know, everything is very much, you know, well thought out on, on sort of, you know, making sure that everything is a, is a, is a winning decision uh, for our guests and our franchisees and, and just staying true to that, I think has been my uh, way of, you know, navigating this, um, this role and, and, you know, trying to lead a, a growing brand and is accelerating, um, you know, faster than ever. And just, um, you know, meeting with our franchisees every day, they encourage me, uh, they motivate me. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's been really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And you are brand new, right? So uh, when was your first day? Uh, my first day was August 15th. Okay. As I, I thought that was when you were when you were chief growth officer. No, oh, that's right. That's right. My, okay. uh, my first day as, uh, as CEO was uh, October 1st. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fast. You, went, you went up the pipeline really fast, I have to say. So what, yeah. what is the secret to going up the ladder of success so quickly? Um, you know, I came into the organization, not so much, I didn't think so much about my title or the the area of the, you know, business coverage that I needed to um, really go about. I looked at the business as a whole and, and everything as an opportunity. So when I was talking to, you know, obviously, uh, you know, our board of the company, you know, um, my bosses, right, ultimately, that are vested in, in the company, I, I 
told them sort of what I saw and, and what I thought were the biggest opportunities and where we were lacking and where we needed to really fine tune. And they saw that as an opportunity for me to, you know, take the leadership role to kind of run with it. So I think for any, anyone who's, um, you know, who hasn't been sort of in that challenge of a role as you're taking on a new role and is taking on a new career. I think that's something that you should really think about is that not just think, you know, worry about kind of your, you know, uh, your, your your scope of work, but really understand the entire business and see the other opportunities because, you know, there's so much collaboration and integration that's happening in the business world these days. Just because you come in with, you know, one sort of a mindset or expertise doesn't mean that you can't challenge, you know, yourself in other areas of business. And, and that's basically what I did. So I looked at our performance. I looked at our sales. I looked at how our franchisees are operating. I looked at our menu. I looked at all of the channels that we're going into and saw a lot of ways that we can do things differently and, 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 and better. And, and I really just spoke up. I, you know, because really at this point, you know, if, if uh, there was nothing to sort of hide about what I, what I uncovered and I wasn't shy about it and I really wanted, you know, this business to get better and really maximize all the opportunities that it has. So that I think got everyone really here excited and, um, and, and gave me the opportunity to lead. Um, so what are some of the, that you mentioned you, you came up, you found some things that you would want to do differently. Uh, so what are some of those things and what have, uh, and that maybe you've been working on for the past few months? Yep. So that really leads into our, um, you know, the, the key areas of the business that we're going to be working on in 2024. Uh, one is, you know, I know everybody in the restaurant industry is talking about technology and it's constantly evolving and changing and, you know, and, and getting better. And that's something that we need to definitely keep up with. We have a great, um, you know, baseline today. And we went through a quick transformation during COVID because we didn't have the technology in place. So what we, you know, started with back, you know, during the pandemic, it's not necessarily for the future for us. So we're going to, you know, build our uh, future stack in, in technology and make all the things on where, you know, no matter where our guests are, whether they're in the restaurant, out the restaurant, at home, I want to make it you know, super seamless and easy for them to navigate our menu and, and get Banchan in, you know, to where, wherever they are. So that's been number one uh, task for us. And, and our stores, you know, are also asking for it from a labor standpoint. I think technology could be a something that really brings, you know, relief to uh, certain labor models. So we're working on that technology piece from both, you know, B2B side and also in the B2C side. Uh, the second piece is supply chain, you know, is, as we've been growing, um, you know, we've really needed a great uh, national supply chain uh, in place, and we've been working towards it. So we are rolling um, a national supply chain system in process for our franchisees um, in 2024 um, and in Q2. So that's really exciting for us, and that that give us, will give us tremendous leverage to uh, even grow faster and, you know, run our business more effectively. And then um, third is just all of these other opportunities that we haven't really seeked out. One of them being, you know, um, catering. So, you know, so our Korean food, you know, naturally has a way to, you know, gather people and is super shareable. And I don't know that anybody in the Korean um, food category has really tapped into it. And, and, and we already have a great catering business and menu. So I see tremendous opportunity for us to grow incrementally in that catering business and bring that you know, Korean party to, to wherever your business, your home, you know, wherever you're gathering. 
Uh, definitely a couple things to touch upon there. Uh, you're definitely speaking my language when it comes to technology <laughs> as the tech reporter for NRN. Um, and um, so I guess, what what do you think is like the top of your list for for tech changes? You mentioned a couple of things. Yeah, you know, I I think it's, you know, it all has to do with obviously the, the, the online ordering component of it. Mm-hmm. You know, our menu is not that complicated. However, knowing our menu could be complicated and not, you know, maybe hard for someone to approach, right? So for us, having that very easy to navigate menu online um, is, is super critical because, you know, one, you have to understand the food to try and figure out what, what you need to do. And, you know, we, we can do better at suggestive selling. We can do better at educating. We can do better about explaining, you know, and, and sort of what makes a great Korean meal is how I want this online menu to be. So today it's very tactical in a way that it's, it's about how you order chicken wings or it's about how you order entrees and, and kind of the, you know, typical standard, but I think we can make it even more engaging and fun and have people really have a great experience, no matter how, you know, whether they know our food or not and, and make it super easy for them. Okay. So kind of like a uh, in, intuitive digital experience. That's right. Okay. And that, would that be just for like the website or for or app or Definitely our trick channel is our number one goal. So banchan.com and having a great menu experience there. But even in restaurant, you know, a lot of our guests are, you know, using us, you know, via kiosk or or just from their phone, right? So making sure that all of those devices, no matter what platform you're on, that we are ready and we're providing that same great, um, like you said, engaging, uh, intuitive menu experience. Um, and you also mentioned supply chain. Um, I'm actually curious, uh, are any of the ingredients imported from Korea? Is there any challenge with that? Or um, Our sauces are proprietary. So that is a huge, um, you know, um, tool for us in a, in a, in a, in a um, and it's a, it, 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 can, it can be challenging. We've, we found a, a partner who manufactures the sauce for us in, in the States. So since the pandemic, it's been very challenging to import the sauce from Korea. So we've, um, we found a way to bring the sauce here and we're making the sauces here. That allows us also, uh, us to also innovate on the sauces. So, which, um, you know, we had not tapped into. We're known for soy, garlic, and spicy. And this year we've introduced, or the, in, in just in 2023, we introduced a new yang yam sauce as well as K-barbecue. So we're going to be doing more of the seasonal sauce plays and bring that innovation. And in, with, with that said, that this national supply chain process is hugely important because we want to be able to provide that consistency of products everywhere. The other thing is because we're a Korean restaurant, we have a lot of unique Asian ingredients that we need to source and we need to be able to, um, uh, you know, have consistency everywhere from a quality standpoint. So then, you know, that's another value that we'll be able to add with the national system to have that right quality products of these, you know, sometimes hard to source items that are that are unique, uniquely Korean, uniquely Asian that are all of our restaurants um, need to get. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, the Bonchan's expansion. Uh, so and, and development, uh, the, the brand has been expanding uh, fairly rapidly uh, recently. Uh, could you tell me a bit about the uh, growth momentum in store for 2024 and beyond? Yeah, in 2024, we're looking at um, 40 stores that are currently in the pipeline that we already have 
you know, ready to build dates, right? So, and that's pretty aggressive for a company like, you know, like us. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's also very important. We're also going into three new countries in, in 2024. Um, and global, you know, expansion is, um, is, is also rapidly growing. It's interesting. The global business is a little bit different. It's master franchising business. So each of the franchisees have their own country that they're operating. Like France is its own operator that's going to be expanding and, um, and, and, and Philippines and Singapore and, and so on. In the U.S., you know, uh, we are working with smaller franchise groups. So there are a lot of them are, you know, family owned franchisees and, and going back to, you know, uh, you know, 20 years when, when, when we started. So it's a, it's a little bit of a different dynamic, but the most important, you know, piece to it is our current franchisees that who already are passionate and love our brand and growing with them and making it easy for them to grow uh, together. So that's been our on our focus and just making sure that we have a really tight uh, community and relationship with our franchisees to make sure that we have that support structure in place to not only make sure that they have a successful model today to run their you know current business, but also to grow into the new business. So from site selection to uh, to designing and building out the restaurant, and then having great openings and making sure that they have you know great uh, way to run their business day to day has been been something that we're working on. So it's that's that's been you know that's that's always a hard to do to you can certainly grow you know just by opening net units but making sure that we're trying to make sure that every opening is a quality opening and every location can deliver on the expected uh sales mm-hmm. um and you mentioned how important it is to uh to have such a good relationship with your franchisees and i'm curious is Bonchan mostly franchised in the u.s that's right yes we are about 95 percent franchise Okay, great. Um, and so I guess how do you uh how do you attract franchisees and 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 develop your relationship with franchisees um uh, in the long term? Yeah, it's that it's um it's been a learning process for me, and you know, at at company like Brinker, that was also you know like a master franchising where we had larger franchise groups that we were dealing with, and internationally it was you know, country by country that we work with much larger hospitality groups that ran those countries. In here in the US with Banchan, they're mostly family owned and and that's where I make the most of my connection. Um, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, um, my parents were, you know, immigrants here and they own their um, own businesses. And my brother and I, you know, worked at our parents' businesses with convenience stores, um, restaurants, and, you know, all through college, high school, college, we, we worked there. So I have tremendous empathy for our franchisees who are going through the basically the same life experience that, as I did mm-hmm. as I was growing up. And and now that I'm a grown up and I'm in this role that, you know, um, and, and, and I realize how, how important it is because for them, it's their livelihood, right? And for us as a brand, as a restaurant that, you know, there were look, we can easily look at as, as, as a system. But when you, when you talk to everyone, you know, one of them, they have different reasons, their own passions and how they want to run their business and how they operate. So it's been a one-on-one relationship building. It's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of conversations, a lot of learning about who they are. It it's it really helps me when I know where they come from and what their you know values are and passions are and why they do the things that they do with their banchan. And um, but ultimately, you know, they love banchan. They love the food. They love the quality. And I respect 
so much, you know, of what they do every day because they will not sacrifice um, on on food quality and food flavor and execution. And, you know, everything else becomes very easy for me to then help them on, whether it's marketing, whether it's, you know, you know, helping them drive traffic, helping them with their supply chain or technology. These are all of the things that I can bring to the table to make their business run much smoother and easier and continue to grow. But what they do on, you know, making great food every day and, and providing great hospitality has been has been has been great. So just meeting everybody's been so interesting. They come from all kinds of different backgrounds. We have a lot of young uh uh, franchisees that come from kind of the business world and and they run a very different model themselves so it's been a it's been a great process understanding you know how you know some of them sort of run their businesses and and there's been a you know great sharing of information so our franchisees are also in a great in a way that you know they're a very tight-knit group and they share a lot of the you know sort of learnings and best in class uh, type of things that they've seen in the banchan world and and it's it's been it's been a great way to you know continue to build that on mm-hmm. okay great um i think that's a great note to end on um it's it's awesome that you have uh that franchising experience yourself and can kind of uh you know you know uh, what it's been like to be in the trenches 